This is not a new revelation. This is something that everybody absolutely positively knows. I don't, I don't have to be, you know, beat, beat a dead horse here. But you know that Paul's writings, when he writes to the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and even in Philemon, that little letter to Philemon, he starts out, we all know this, with doctrine. And then he goes to practicality. So we've come to that point. And as a matter of fact, um, John Stott is somebody that some of the people that are going to be teachers have been, have been uh, reading and know about. And uh, he calls it this way. He says, uh, John Stott says that the first part, the first three chapters are Christian doctrine, Christian faith, what God has done through Christ, and then the last three, or the, the last three chapters are Christian duty, Christian life, and what we must do in consequence. And I thought, well, that's pretty good. And probably most of you, uh, if you've done any studying with Stott, you know that. That is something you've... <laughs> okay, so what I've done is I've, I've read other people, other commentators. I want you to listen to what, this, what so many of them say. And it, it, it's just, this is a common format. I understand that. But I get kind of... I like words, and you're going to see that in a minute. But some of the commentators said, this is the doctrinal section, and chapters three on is the doing section. And those of us that are more data-informed, input, the first three chapters, output. I love that one. Theology, practicality, creed, conduct, Christian's wealth, and the Christian's walk, exposition, and exhortation. And all of that is true. That's very, very true. J. Vernon McGee. We know, yeah, we know J. <laughs> Vernon McGee. He says we're living in resurrection territory today. Mm. And chapter three, or chapters four, five, and six tells us what that resurrection territory should look like. Mm. And that's what we're going to be getting into. Let's look over at chapter 4, and I know it's already been read. That word therefore means everything that has come before this, because of all this stuff that's come before, so all of chapters 1, 2, and 3, because of all of that, what it tells us here is that, he's, that Paul urges you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And I want to focus in on the word urge, on the word calling, and then we're going to go back to the word worthy. But that word urge is very emotional, and it's a very intense type of word. It's not just a, it would be nice. I'm suggesting that. That's not it. He says, I urge you. I'm begging you. King James uses this words that I like, I beseech you. You know, I mean, it's not just a matter of, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just throwing this out. He says, I'm urging you. And what he is urging is, has a, a direct relationship to their calling. And this word calling, all through scripture, has absolute reference, absolute reference to conversion, to what it's like to become born again. 
You can look in 7 Timothy chapter uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, 1 2 Thessalonians, they both use that. Hebrews chapter 3 uses that uh, calling. 2 Peter verse uh, chapter 1 verse 10, this is what God has already done. This is what God has done for you. This is your calling. And then what he says, it says, I'm urging you to walk worthy. Walk in a manner that is worthy. And that word worthy, it means to have worth, means to have value. And the root idea is weight. And what I want you to do is picture this balanced scale. He wants you to walk worthy of chapters 1, 2, and 3, what he's done for you. Walk worthy of that so that it's a balance. And that, that's really what the word worthy means. I want you to picture that idea of a balanced scale. And what John Piper says here is the value of our position is the focus here. There's a great value of what has happened in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And that's what we need to focus on. Because of that, we're going to have a worthy walk. That's what that's talking about here. Now, what follows in verses 2 and verses 3 is how this is to be accomplished. And there are some real tandem things that are going on here. These are heart issues. Don't make any mistake about that. These are heart issues. These are inner attitudes. And remember what... Um, Kelly, what she, what Kelly, what Kelly taught last week about how the Holy Spirit is to work in the inner man. This is where this is where it's talking about. These are heart issues, and they're tandems. This is how walking worthy is to be accomplished. Notice what they are. Something that's in tandem goes hand in hand. We have a couple of guys in our neighborhood that on. Um, on garbage day, they get on their tandem bikes and they have a little carrier in the back and they go around and they look for things. And they're always, you know, they're right together. They're hitched together. These are hitched together here. Look at the first grouping. He says that you're to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. Now, some, some, some versions I know use meekness, but this idea of humility. The hum humility is the first of these issues. Humility is the beginning. And nothing dies harder than the desire to think well of oneself. That's a very basic thing. Humility. <laughs> we are proud people. And to be humble is to begin to work toward the unity and the worthiness of our calling. Let me quote Aristotle here. Check this out. The great Greek virtue is the refusal to tolerate any insult and readiness to strike back. Obviously, the Greeks didn't think much of humility. Humility was considered servile and just low as you can get. But what God says here, what Paul is reinforcing here is humility 
and along with it comes gentleness. You know, if you're humble, it's easier to be gentle. It really is. It's a very difficult thing if you're not humble to put on an act of gentleness. And then notice what the next ones, the next grouping. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Patience. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. There's another tandem that goes together. Patience isn't that either easy either, is it? Bearing with one another? My goodness. And it says, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And unity, by the way, is another, that's oneness. That is a oneness. (coughs) Excuse me. That's a oneness. And it talks about uh, it talks about love here. Notice what it says here. Eager to maintain, uh, to, uh, bearing with one another in love. In love. This word is agape. There are three kinds of love. There is eros, which is a get love. Whatever I can get from you, I'm going to get it. And it's a very base love. It's one that is a, a worldly love that speaks of <coughs> emotion and lust passion, that sort of thing. That's full of getting. And then there's phileo. That's a get and give. That's a I'll give to you and you give to me. It's, it's phileo. It's friendship. It's the love of a friendship where, um, uh, where this is what we do things for our friends and they do things for us. So eros is all get. Phileo is, uh, is get and give. And then there's agape, which is what this is. And agape is all give. It's all give, totally selfless, and it seeks the other's good at any price. It seeks the other's good at any price. (coughs) Excuse me. So here we've got these tandems. We've got these things that are put together. He talks about uh, humility and gentleness, patience and bearing with one another. He talks about love. And then it says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain. I like this. You know, this word eager is from a root word that means to make haste. That means to work at it. To hurt. It's the idea of zeal, hard work, and right now. Hurry up. Let's do this right now. It's not something you put on the back burner. It's something you do right now. You work at it. And this idea of eager to maintain, that means to keep. To keep. The Spirit has already made us one. And Chrissy taught that, where it talks about in uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, well, let's go ahead and look at that. Chapter 2, verse 14. He talks about, um, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He has made us one. That's something that's already there. He has made us one. But we are to to keep that, to maintain that. 
The Spirit has already made us one. We don't have to attain to it. We just have to maintain it. There's a difference. When we, when we used to go, I, I used to teach at uh, Temple Christian Schools when it was down on... No, no, no. Uh, uh, Telegraph in West Chicago. And if you were a teacher there, you had to join the church, so... Remember in the church, and Mr. Sluss would get up, and he was the head of all the janitors, and he took care of everything, and he'd get up, and he'd talk about the maintenance report. Not the maintenance report, <laughs> but the maintenance report. And I kind of like that. That's what this is. This is a maintenance report. We're to keep that. We've, he's already made us that way. We're to keep that. We're to keep that unity, and unity means oneness. And what holds it together? The bond of peace. You know what the word bond means? Belt. It means belt. What you, what you put around you to hold things in, to hold things around you, you know, that sort of thing. And if we were to take this, there's a backwardsness here. You go backwards. True peace is based on true love, which is based on true patience which is based on true meekness, and it's born of true humility. So this is a progression. Unity comes from this progression that is talked about right here. And when we get to verses 4 and 6, we see the basis and the cause of a worthy walk. These are the foundations of our efforts. This is what uh, is intended to preserve our our. Um, our unity. Look at verses 4 and 6. There is one body and one spirit. One body. Now that is a metaphor for the church. We've had other pictures of what the church has been called. Uh, all, let's see, at the end of uh, verse uh, chapter 2, talk, talks about um, being a household, talks about being um, a, a structure, a temple. Uh, and when we get to chapter 5, it's going to talk about the bride. Though there's a lot of metaphors, but here this particular metaphor, um, this particular metaphor is body, and it refers to the ch church. There is one body, and then it says one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, we've got a lot of ones here. One is a unity number. One is a unity number. This is very Trinitarian here. I, I, I get that. I understand that. Uh, verse 4 speaks about, and it, it, everything is clustered around the Spirit. This is the Spirit's verse. Look at what it says here. Uh, there's one Spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call. The Spirit, talk, in verse 4, um, this Greek word is used here, that's used here, is only used when it is speaking of the divine, and it always means the Holy Spirit. And if you've got an ESV Bible, it's capitalized, so there's no question about it. And what the Spirit does, for one thing, calls you to one hope. To one hope. Oh, man. What time is it? I wish I could take 10 minutes and talk about hope. Because hope has devolved. The word hope has devolved. 
The word hope now is, oh, I hope I picked the right present for her. Oh, I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope the mailman brings it. It all revolves around us, our desire. But biblical hope, if you were to take all of the words that are translated hope in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you know there are four words that over and over keep appearing as a synonym that could be used for anticipation, assurance, confidence, and expectation. And actually, this one right here has a, an idea of anticipation with great excitement. Um, now, the reason biblical hope can be confident and can be assured and can be a expectant anticipation or a confident expectation however you want to say it, is because it's not based in us. It's based in God and what he has promised. It's based in what he has said and what he has said is going to happen. So the Spirit has brought that to us, that confidence, that hope of what God has said is going to come to pass. What he has said in the past has come to pass, and what he tells us now, it is going to come to pass. I mean, that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. That's something we ought to marinate in and think about. This is the, uh, uh, this is the Spirit's verse. This, this, this verse here is all clustered around the Holy Spirit. That's what that's clustered around. And then we come to the Son's verse. It says, One Lord... One faith, one baptism. This is the Spirit's verse. And we've got this idea of one Lord. We don't have many lords. We have one Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Somebody's going to be your shepherd. Who's your one Lord? Paul's teaches it's the Lord Jesus Christ. One Lord. And it says one faith. We don't have a whole bunch of faiths. We have one faith. Well, I can take some of this and I can go from... No, it's one faith in him. And then it mentions one baptism. Baptism, does that mean immersion? Does it mean sprinkling? I don't think so. If, you, if, um, if, we, were to, um, if we were to go to Galatians... Let's, let's do that. Let's, let's look at Galatians 3... I've got a note here, so I've got to refresh my own mind. Galatians 3, 27 and 28. Galatians 3, chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> 3, verses 27 and 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to promise. It's this idea, not so much of getting wet as it is of identification. 
we have one identification. He is who we should be identified with. Does that make sense? Do you see that? So that, that particular verse, verse 5, is the son's verse. Then we get to verse 6, and this is God's verse. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And if you've had any type of idea about looking for words that repeat themselves, how about all there? Mm-hmm. What you've got here while the one verse is clustered around the Holy Spirit and the other next verse is clustered around the, the Son and the last verse is clustered around God the Father, you've got an argument from effect to cause. You've got an argument from effect to cause. Each member of the Trinity is concerned with our salvation. They're equal in essence, but they're diverse in their work. God the Father predestines. God the Son propitiates. God the Spirit regenerates. God the Father chooses us. God the Son died for us. God the Spirit quickens us. That means makes us alive spiritually. God the Father designed redemption. God the Son accomplished redemption. And the Spirit, God the Spirit, applies redemption. Our unity comes from the seven grand unities of the spirit here it's eternal and it's unbreakable and actually that little verse or that little grouping of verses uh, verse four five and six um, many many scholars believe that that is an early confessional hymn that and you can see how that could be sung i mean you could see how that that really truly would be an early confessional hymn then we come to this very, oh, it almost seems a little strange here. All of a sudden, all of a sudden he throws in the Old Testament. He gives us a little exposition here on, <laughs> he gives us a little exposition here on Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen. But what I want to do, I want to focus in, and we're going to read it, don't misunderstand me, but we're going to focus in on seven word, or on three words. Two words are in, cha- in verse 7, and one word is in verse 8. The first word is grace. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let me stop right there. But grace and grace, John MacArthur says that grace is the act of giving not dependent upon the receiver, but totally and only dependent upon the giver. It is unearned, undeserved, unmerited. It is the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. That's what grace is. Doesn't come from us. It's what was given to us. Grace was given given to us. If you are one of the saints that's mentioned at the very first in in verse 1, if you are one of the saints, and by the way, saints is a word that is not bestowed, it's not earned, it is given to every believer. I am Saint Jan, whether you like it or not. If you are a believer, you can be Saint Becky, you can be Saint 
Shannon, if you're a believer, you're a saint. We're going to talk about that in a minute too at the end. But just keep that in mind. But that's the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Oh my goodness. That word gift. If you were to look up that word in Strong's, <clears throat> in, the, in one of the one of the commentaries, it's a free gift, and what it does is it stresses the gratuitous nature of the gift. When you go out to a restaurant and you get the bill, you pay the bill. But you know what you do too? If it's good service, you give a gratuity. You give a gift. And that's what is said. This, it says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That goes beyond salvation. That goes beyond salvation. He has given us, along with salvation, a gift above that. Don't you tell me you don't have a gift. Because if you say you don't have a gift... You're saying scripture is not true. And that particular word there, gift, means gratuity. It's above salvation. You've gotten something that goes beyond just salvation. And I'm telling you, that's something that you ought to be able to shout about. One of my friends um, is a member over at uh, Franklin Road. And uh, went to her father's or her mother's funeral service there Brightmore. and the pr Franklin Road was the name of the old school oh Brightmore I'm sorry yeah Brightmore that's right Franklin Road. but anyway uh, um, her mother uh, she died and we went to the funeral there and the pastor as he was speaking he was saying that there were so many Baptists that had come he says we call you Bapticostals we need to be Baptocostal when we start hearing this. This is something that we should absolutely shout about. Because what it says that not only do we get a new creation, not only we are, are we in God's family and in his inheritance, we are his, he is ours, but he has given us a gift. He has given us gifts, and we're going to see there are going to be gifts that need to be used. All right. Now, the next one, it says this. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. See that word gifts there? That word isn't just the regular word for gifts, because what it does, it lends greater stress to that concrete character of the gift. He gave gifts to men. Now, I know you had in your doojabi, your the book there, our book, we um, compare it. But you know, if you have got, <laughs> if you have got a good study Bible, that's not going to bother you. Because the Hebrew word, 
the Hebrew word here where it says receiving is actually the same word that means, it's just a superficial difference here. It's the same word that means to receive in order to give. It means to fetch. You throw the ball to the dog and what does he do? He goes and get it and brings it back to you. It's just very superficial. It's not something to get all worked up over. As a matter of fact, to me, it even gives a little more beef to it. Because what the rest of it is, if we were to look at Psalm 68, we're not going to go back there, but just looking at this, what he's pulled out, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. You know that, um, that little um, uh, rectangle thing that uh, Jeff has shown how, uh, let's see, I think it's over in this corner, there's the text, and then if you go right up to the uh, uh, making application, how you miss a whole lot of stuff. What you need to do is go over to this corner and over here is where what does it mean in that time frame and for the people that are reading it. And then you go up here and you see the picture of Christ. Then you come back over here and then you've got to go. That is absolutely what this is. Because what Psalm 68 is, is a celebration psalm. It's an absolute celebration song because what those, what it's talking about is a returning warrior king and he has gone off to battle. He has brought back all of those captives that had been held by the army that he was going to defeat and he has brought back some of their goods. He's brought back some of, the, uh, some of the defeated ones even, and he brings it up into the temple area, and everyone rejoices, and then he gives gifts of what he has brought back. Now, that's beautiful. That is gorgeous. And that's what he says. It's like this. This is what's happened. We have had this victory march, this victory march that has come back did he descend? Yes. He, first of all, he descended into human form. And then he descended to the death of the cross and right into the grave. But he didn't stay there. He went further down and he brought back. Uh, Pastor Dan taught a wonderful lesson on that, about how he had led captivity captive. And he brought, he brought back the Old Testament saints he brought back all those that were waiting in paradise. Remember what he said to the, to the thief? He says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He brought that thief with him. He brought all of the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament saints. And you know what? He showed defeat. He showed Satan and sin and death and the grave and the fear of dying. It was all marched out there. Here we are, and this is victory. I've tried to think. We don't do that today. We don't. I, I suppose the biggest thing, like um, after World War II, when the soldiers came home and they had the ticker parade down, you know, in Man uh, whatever it was in New York or wherever it was. But we don't do that. But that was appropriate to that time. It showed victory, and it showed that everyone took part of the spoils. 
everyone took part of gifts. They were given to everyone. And um, all right, let's go ahead and read in verse 9. Uh, but but that's, that's what I, I want you to see this. Gifts were given to each one of us. And in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. He was going to complete everything. Do you remember that about joining those things in heaven and things in earth that we had, we had studied earlier? Uh, this is beautiful, and gifts were given to each one of us. You know what? I, we don't have time to do this, but write this down. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, 1 Peter 4.10. We see some of the gifts in other places. We're told of some of the gifts right now. Let's look at because what it says in verse 11, it says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. He gave the apostles and prophets. This is what Paul is, has, has written. And he did, didn't he? He gave apostles and prophets. We don't have apostles and prophets now. We don't need them. We don't need people that uh, speak in tongues. We don't need people, because that's, if you go to uh, 1 Corinthians, you'll see speaking in tongues. And we don't need people that, um, uh, that uh, can interpret the tongues. We don't need people that can um, raise the dead. We don't need people like, those were apostolic signs showing that God had sent them that God was speaking through them. I have never yet had anyone, when I have helped mow the lawn and helped do some outside work, come and sneak up and grab my Kleenex and take it to somebody that was sick and them get healed. That doesn't happen. Of course it doesn't. We don't need that. That doesn't prove anything. We have the total, full word of God. We don't need that now. But it does say he gave some apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. And this is interesting. There is only one person in all of Scripture that is called an evangelist. Do you know who that is? Anybody? Some of you Bible, Bible people? Philip. My Bible people here. <laughs> Philip. Yes. He's the only one in all of Scripture that is called an evangelist. That's in Acts chapter 21, verse 8. Now, when Paul writes to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he tells him to do the work of an evangelist. That was someone that would go and that would preach and that would open up territories and that would, uh, some people take this, um, Piper is one that talks about this as a mission verse, that we should be sending evangelists there are some people that just know how to talk like that. At uh, Temple Baptist, there was a, um, a guy named Ed Terry. Oh, I wish Millie Adams were here. She'd know some of these names. There, there was a guy named Ed Terry. And I, I, I've heard different people say, I asked Ed to go see my, my, my father-in-law that was in the hospital. And he would take the word of God to them. 
and he would lead them to the Lord. I've heard people say, I asked Ed to go see my sister. Um, you know, she's having a hard time. And he, he just had that gift of being able to open up the word of the Lord. And when the word was spoken, God blessed it. You know, he knows who he chose. He knows who is going to be his children. And he makes sure that they come together, that the word of God, that the evangelist finds that person and the word of God. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm beating that horse, I think, a little bit too much. But it says here, there's a, per there's a reason for it. <clears throat> Why do we have apostles? Why do we have prophets? Why do we have evangelists? And then it mentions shepherds. And this actually, most, most uh, uh, you'll have footnotes and whatnot on it that says uh, preachers and teachers. Preachers and teachers. And this is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And that means service. You know, this debunks the old idea, and I think it was uh, James Montgomery Boyce, that I, one of those books that I had looked at. I thought this was so cool. He says, most people view the church as one of two ways. Either it's a pyramid with the preacher at the top looking down at everybody and everybody trembling and just doing whatever he says. Yeah, that's good. Or as a bus where he's the driver and he's going around and taking everybody and the rest of the, they're just sitting in the back, kind of half asleep and will wake up once in a while and go back asleep. It debunks it. This absolutely debunks it because it says that preachers and teachers are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To equip. What does equipping mean? That means giving the tools, giving what is needed for the ministry. We are to be ministers. And the reason that we're to be ministers is right there. For building up the body of Christ. That's what we are called. The church is called the body of Christ. Verse 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. I want to, I'm going to read the rest of this. And I want you to pick up on some of these words. I want you to pick up on these uh, building up and maturing words. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful scenes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know what's amazing? Joshua, your baby that's coming, your baby that's coming, 
he is going to, or she, is going to grow by the cells within it multiplying. Those little bones aren't going to stay little bones. They're going to grow. That flesh isn't going to say that kind of flesh. It's going to get bigger and bigger. It's going to grow. We are to grow up and we build ourselves up in agape, in love, right there, in agape. Look at those, look at the, look at those uh, words, to mature manhood, till we all come in the unity of the faith. And King James says, till we all come in the unity of faith or arrive at the unity of faith. We're to be mature, no longer children. We're to grow up. Now, what, you, what I want you to realize, this section is a launch pad. This verses 1 through 16 is a jumping off section. It's a threshold section for the rest of the lessons. Because whether it's Sue next week or it's Chrissy or... or um, uh, Kelly again, or Courtney, or who else, Rebecca, Becky, um, whoever it is that's teaching is going to explain further. They're going to get into more depth about what this means. This is literally a launch pad. And you're going to see that he speaks to slaves and masters, how to be a part of that uh, unity and love. He's going to talk to husbands and wives. It's going to talk to fathers and mothers and children. It's, it's going to be all fleshed out. This is, this, is, this is just the start. This is just telling you this is what we're to do. We're to mature this way. We're to grow up this way. We are to use our gifts with one another, whatever they are. And you know what? You don't have to have just one gift. You don't have to have just one gift. It may be more than that. And it may change. It may change with the times. It may change with the seasons. It may change. I can remember back years ago, I used to teach about the fruits of the Spirit. There is no such thing as the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit, singular of the Spirit, because there's going to be time when you need more humility. There's going to be time when you need more long-suffering. Do you see what I'm getting at? Uh, okay. If you, uh, I'm, I'm going to stop with this. If you leave, live in my house. <clears throat> if you live in my house, you live in a sports environment. And uh, you've probably seen that commercial lately with Eli Manning and the hot sauce, you know. And, of course, his brother, Peyton Manning. Both of them were very successful, very successful quarterbacks. And I forget stuff, okay. I know stuff, but I forget it because maybe I don't care that much about it. <laughs> and... Um, I said, I said to Bill uh, a day or two ago, I said, uh, their dad, Andrew Manning, he said, 
No, Archie Manning. Was it Archie? Yeah, Archie Manning. I said, okay, Archie Manning. I said, uh, did he, he must have been a quarterback in college. He said he was a quarterback, a very good quarterback uh, in the professions. He, he, he played for the New Orleans Saints, but he said the team was terrible. He said the team was just awful. And when they played a game, the fans would come with bags over their head, their eyes were cut out, and they were called the Aints, <laughs> not the Saints. We don't want to be an Aint. We don't want to be like that. We want to be the visible church. The visible church that shows people what has happened on the inside. What's happened on the inside. Um, I know there was something else I wanted to say to think, but I, I can't think of it, so I guess the Lord didn't want me to do it. But um, at any rate, I just leave you with that. And just probably all of us at one time or another have put a bag over our head. Get it off. We need to get it off. And that's the wonderful thing about it. We can be restored. We can be forgiven. Because it's all under the blood. Okay.